Join me. Father, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you for what this season means, the, the presence of hope in the midst of everything that tells us that we don't have it. Um, thank you that we can hope in you, hope in your presence in times of chaos, in times of, of loneliness, in times of, of uh, need. It's in your name we gather. Give us ears today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how many of you are aware of the Hallmark TV situation happening right now on for Christmas shows? Do we know about this? No commercials. So you can steam through about 30 Hallmark movies about Christmas, which are all the same plot lines. And you didn't know that? Same, it's the same thing. I mean, you can map it out. But you can watch, I have a friend that has his whole holiday schedule of, of movies. Uh, he's not here, or I would point him out. But he's the last guy you would ever think that has the entire schedule of Hallmark Christmas movies printed out and has his DVR ready to record. From the moment Thanksgiving ends until the day after Christmas, he has every Christmas movie he's ever going to watch. Which begs me to this question. What is your favorite Christmas movie? Die Hard? What that? Polar Express. That's the Tom Hanks cartoon one, right? That's a good one. White Christmas? I saw that for the first time last week. Elf. Home Alone 3. Three. Christmas Story. Okay. Muppets Christmas Carol. Ah, oh, Scrooged. The other one. Okay, we have a whole bunch. I was with you with Home Alone, but Home Alone 1. Yes, the original. After a while, they're just trying to make money on the same concept, same plot line. At what point did those parents get called in of always forgetting their child? <laughs> and in today's culture, that would have been solved with a simple text. Mom, I'm still home. <laughs> but anyway, we were watching Home Alone yesterday. Uh, and, and if you noticed... He is thrilled about being home alone, right? And you would be too if you had a brother like his. You little worthless whatever. You, what, you are what the French called incompetent or whatever. Les incompetents, yes. I liked his brother's outlining though. One, two, D. I mean, it's a great movie. But what do we see in the first part of the movie? Kevin is thrilled to be what? Alone. He's running around his house. I'm home alone. They're gone. He's dancing. He thinks he's wished them away. And then what happens? He tries to buy a toothbrush. And then things switch. He realizes, oh, I'm home alone. This is getting rough. There's this thing that we have where we love to think that we are doing good by ourselves and we have this independent spirit, which is good. And we want to do things and strike out on ourselves and, and do things alone and by ourselves. And then something happens and we realize, oh boy, I'm all alone. Trouble happens. Our problems happen. And then we have nobody or we think we don't have anybody to fall back on. Look in our city. Uh, Seattle Times article. I've made the mistake of asking how many people have read the Seattle Times once, so I won't do that again. 
Uh, Seattle Times had an article about the affluence of our city and where, where we are heading. The article said that we are feeling very optimistic about our city. They were polling people. And about 400 people said that. But of the 400 people, 70% said that it is only benefiting a few. You can agree with that. The same 70% said that the region is unprepared to handle the growth of the next few years. Do we agree? Absolutely, said the potholes and parking. Growth, 50% said that the growth uh, has a negative impact on our region. Yeah. And 38% say that life has gotten better. We have this idea that we are progressing, that we are doing well. We are on our own as Seattle, this light to the world. We have a pretty big prideful thing going on. But when you dig down deeper, we have some problems in our city. There are some things happening. This certain growth is causing a lot of un- uncertainty. Not only that, we have about 1,000 people moving into the city uh, per week. And then in the middle of the major growth that we have, many people feel alone. They're sitting in coffee shops all by themselves. Sure, they're working, but we're alone. We suffer from relational brokenness. Pair that with the uncertainty that many people are going through. We have times of crisis. People are going through pain and trauma. And even that causes you to feel even more isolated. It feels good to be alone until you actually need somebody. The loneliness shows, it shows itself in a multitude of places. And maybe you have felt it. Perhaps it's on your first day of your new job. Maybe you're a teacher and it's the first day of the school year and you're excited. You've done this all by yourself. And then the bell's about to ring and you're like, oh boy, here it comes. I don't feel so great. Or maybe it's moments before the, the job interview. Maybe it's the moment after, after something's happened. You've been told you're getting laid off. You're waiting in the waiting room after the test to hear the results. It's these times when you realize we're alone. Chaos and the problems begin to come and you go home to an empty place and you're by yourself. Perhaps when you realize that the things that you expected to happen in your life aren't necessarily happened and you never imagined that you'd be right here right now in this place like you are. When the certainty goes away and you're met with the uncertainty, many of the feelings that we have is isolation. And it leads you to feel alone, fearful, and anxious. And it begins the downward cycle that pulls you further and further away from a certain reality that we wanted to talk about today. When chaos happens, when your problems happen, we tend to feel isolated and we forget something. We'll get to that. There's this part, the theme in scripture that we want to focus on today is this person that we see it in the person of Joseph. And we read about a little bit in Matthew. Joseph, to set a context, is having these expectations. He's betrothed to be married. He's, for our culture, he's engaged. In that time, they would go, the parents would make a deal, they'd pay a dowry. You're going to marry this person and and this is how it's going to work. Simple, right? No more. There wasn't dating apps and sites and things like that back then. They was all arranged. And so Joseph has arranged to marry Mary, which can get confusing. And they're arranged to be married, which meant that they're, they're together. 
But Joseph is in another part of the town or perhaps the country building their life. He's building a house. Culturally, it meant an addition onto his parents' house, which makes every married couple happy. They live next to their in-laws. And he's building things. He's getting his life together. He has this uncertainty. And then one day he hears a rumor that Mary's pregnant. We don't know how he heard. It could have been, hey, bro, I got something to tell you. Um, Either there's a lot of brownies happening or she's pregnant. We don't know what's happening. We don't know how Joseph heard, but what we see is in the middle of his problem, God shows up in a unique way. In the middle of our problems, God shows up in a unique way. God offers us in the middle of our problems more than a plan that promises us to get through. He offers us something better. Let's look at Matthew 18, 118. He says, this, this is how the birth of Jesus happened. It came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, he found out he was pregnant. She was pregnant. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Before they were together, before marriage, if a woman was found to be pregnant, there was two options. There used to only be one, but things had loosened to this point. There was the option of capital punishment. This is what it meant. She could have been put to death. Or there was the option to divorce her quietly. Both were kind of death sentences. If to divorce her quietly, she went away. The betrothal was broken off. It wasn't a divorce. It was more of a broken engagement. We miss it in the translation. But there's, she would have had to raise the child and support herself in a very patriarchal society, which would have been extremely, extremely difficult for her to do. Joseph sees both of these options, and it says because he was a righteous man, also meant that he was graceful, decides to do something to at least give her a shot and put her away quietly. But there's these white lines in the text that I tend to wonder what's going on in Joseph's mind. Here he's expecting something. He's expecting to be married. He's got this whole life planned out. This is how it's going to go when we're married. It's gonna, we're going to live here. There's an extra room over here for when the little one comes. It's coming sooner than he thinks now. And now and this is happening. This is all going to go. And then the news comes. And if you look closely, you can kind of hear the shattering of the expectations. The hopes of what a life was supposed to look like was gone. The dreams of starting a family was gone. The storybook ending was gone. And Joseph had every right to be disappointed. He had every right to be confused. And he has every right uh, to press charges and bring her to the authorities, but he doesn't. He ran into a kink in his plans. And can you put yourself in Joseph's shoes a little bit? Have you ever been in that situation where things don't go as planned? You feel alone. When my dad was going through a sickness in those moments after we got the news that he had passed, even though we're surrounded by family, there's still the aloneness, the isolation that comes. Big life changes. We were expecting a transplant. We were expecting something else. And then the unthinkable happens and we're left feeling isolated. For even now, two years later. 
Before that, nine years ago, we had a house fire because one of those crazy wildfires goes through. We're expecting the firefighters to come in and save the whole neighborhood, right? No, they didn't. And as you saw on the news, those wildfires get pretty crazy. And our house burnt. Our expectations were gone. For a couple years afterwards, we still feel isolated. When life changes happen, you feel isolated. Whether I've lost a job, isolated. You feel like you're alone in this. Joseph is going through those moments right now, and they bring to him this feeling of uncertainty, where you had the, the, the possibilities of everything that possibly could be that's good, and they're shot down with reality. Chaos comes to mind, and your problems start to magnify your feelings. And so Joseph is here. He's considering his options, wondering what he can do. And then God enters and does something that God has done since Genesis 1. Joseph, in his mind of chaos, probably up all night, God speaks into this and brings him a, a promise. Look in verse 20. But after he had considered this, the angel appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what, what is conceived in her is from the Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through a prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth and you will call his name Emmanuel. Joseph's in the thick of this. He's considering his options. And in the middle of his uncertainty, we find two promises. We find the promise of the presence and the promise of the person. God's presence was going to go through with him. The presence of God. It's something that God has been promising to people all through scripture. I'll give you two examples. In Genesis 15, God calls Abraham, tells him to travel 400 miles away. And then he says to Abraham in the first verse, uh, after this, to Abraham, God said, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham stepping out from his family's house. He's going someplace where it's full of uncertainty, knows nobody, and now he's going to step into it. What's God say? I'm your shield. I'm your reward. In other words, I'm going to be the one surrounding you. I'm going to be the one with you. Later, a couple books later, Joshua steps into a very uncertain situation. The people of Israel are kind of a handful to lead. Moses, who had been doing a good job for 40 years, dies. Joshua gets a knock on his tent. It's God saying, Joshua, you're up. You're going to lead these people. Uh, and then Joshua starts freaking out. What, what are you trying to do? We don't see him freaking out, but these words give us a little clue. Joshua, don't be afraid. I would be afraid too if I was Joshua. It says, do not be discouraged for the Lord will go with you. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You can flip through the pages and see, especially in Judges, these people up against the odds where they, all they feel is uncertainty and discouragement and they're met with the presence and the promise of God. They find that in the middle of them searching for a plan, they are met with a promise, and that's the way God works. We request the plan, and instead, we don't often get a plan. Instead, we get the promise of his presence. I'll be with you 
in the middle of your chaos. The angel tells Joseph, this is what's happened. And he ends this entire point with the name that we're going to call him. So you get a promise and then you get a person. What the angel is doing is it's broadened Joseph's viewpoint from saying, I can't work my way through this alone to saying, I'm going to walk you through all of these. I'm going to be next to you in this. And finding someone to be next to you in the middle of chaos is like finding a lifeboat when you're drowning. Joseph finds this, and so God calls him to look beyond his plans and instead look for the God's presence in the middle of it. The plan we're looking for in our lives is the promise that in the midst of our, pro- that midst of our problems, God will be with us. That's why this name Emmanuel sticks out. We're given the promise and we're given a person. Emmanuel is a name that we tend to focus on to, in, in this time of year. But there's another way of reading what Emmanuel means. We translate it in our scriptures the way it goes to say God with us. I think we have it backwards. The preposition or the noun God is what we tend to focus on. God with us. But if you look at it linguistically, the way the word breaks down, it's imanu, which is Hebrew for with. It's the word that's used in Psalm 23 when it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. With, it's the preposition with. We, leave, we don't put a lot of emphasis on with. We put the emphasis on the L, which means God. But if you put them together and look at how it's read, it's better translated the with us, God. And if you look at how, and if you think about how we tend to think about God's presence, we don't think about him necessarily with us often enough. We think it's God and we stop there and we leave out the importance of that preposition with. Linguistically, with us, God makes more sense. And then contextually, when the angel comes to him and says, Emmanuel, the angel is quoting a verse from Isaiah that Joseph, in all of his upbringing, would have been very familiar with. It comes from Isaiah 7, verse 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give a son, and to call him Emmanuel. The context of this, the child is coming in the middle of crisis, in the middle of hardship. There's a king. He's concerned about everything that's happening around him. He gets a word from the Lord saying, God with you. With you is God. In the middle of the hardship, the king gets comfort that in the middle of your problems, there's a promise of presence that is better than any plan that you can ever imagine. The presence of God that takes you through the problems. Our plans fail, but God's presence is constant. God's desire is that we face the chaos that we would find, in the middle of the chaos that we find, we would find certainty not only in our plans, but in the comfort of his presence. We need to first believe that God is actually present with us, the with us God. And in Acts 17, Paul begins to say this, he is not far from us. 
Acts 17, 27. For some of us, it's hard to believe that God would ever be present with us. We might doubt even what the scriptures say about it. God always is present and he's always at work in often very surprising ways. We have a theology in our culture that teaches us that God is, that we are trying to escape this place. We have volumes written about how we're getting out of these times, the end times, getting off of this place and onto something better. And we talk about things far away that we can just escape. And though those theologies might carry weight and though heaven's promise is real, the majority of scripture doesn't show us a picture about God helping us get out. If you flip through scripture, what you see page after page after page is God's presence trying to break in to be with us. In the middle of the chaos, he comes in to be with. Genesis 1.1, God's spirit hovering over chaos, bringing order, calling life into it. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He rescues us from the slavery of sin. Matthew's entire gospel is framed on that word, the with us God. He starts with it, and then he ends with it. If you look in Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you even to the end of the age. I am still with you. This is the last verse of the book. In the beginning, he starts with the with us God. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he ends with the with you God. What's Matthew's point of his entire scripture? With you in all of your chaos is God. So we have problems. We have a presence. And because of that presence, it leads us to a peace. Look what Paul says in Romans. He's building a case here about how powerful God is, is and, and what we can rely on with, with God. And he goes in Romans 8. What shall we say this in response to these things? Here's the first question. These are all rhetorical. What do we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Good. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will... How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring charges against, against those for whom God has chosen? And the answer is nobody, okay? Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? Paul answers this one for you. No one. Christ who died is more, Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one. Okay, so the presence is sticking. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger from the sword? Is that about everything that we go through? Trouble, hardship, nakedness, danger of death. Those are all things that we face, maybe in different kinds of words. But those are things that we face in the middle. And what's Paul say? Can't separate God from you in the middle of those and then he says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Paul is listing all the things that might get in the way in our minds of God being with us. And he's building a case for us to begin to realize there is nothing that can separate us from the presence of God. Not even those who stand against you. 
not even those who tend to press charges. Remember the book of Romans, they're being persecuted, they're being drugged in front of the courts. You're a Christian, we're pressing charges. Doesn't matter, not even the law in all of its strength can separate you from the with you God. And then he goes on, who condemns you? So if you get proven guilty, nothing can separate you. So verse 37, he answers all of his questions. No, in all of these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And a verse that I think we should all remember. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, so whether you're dead or alive, nor angels or demons, things that we tend to be fearful of, neither present or future, the largest unknowns that we've ever faced, nor any power, so in case he missed anything, nor any other thing, nor any powers, can neither height nor depth, how many of you afraid of heights? Can't separate you. How many of you afraid of going way deep into something? Like a cave, spelunking, we have one, two, three, four, okay. We're afraid of those things, not even your biggest fears, can separate you, nor anything else in all creation. Again, in case we miss something, nothing can separate you, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your problems that we have, nothing is big enough to peel away the presence of God with you. Nothing is able to peel that away. The withness of God. With you is God. In the crossroads of your life, in the times where you're searching for a plan, God's already present with you in that point. And that leads you to a peace. Because nothing can separate you. Paul says, I'm convinced of his presence. And because of his convinced, he is more than a conqueror. What conquers you when you think of this? When you think of your problems? When you think of the chaos that you're going through? Are you being conquered? Or through the presence of Christ, are you able to conquer? Do you believe that you're more than conquerors when it comes to your debt load? Is that thinking... Is that you thinking that God is not with you? Are you more than a conqueror when it comes to your relationships with your spouse, with your friends, with your parents, with your children? Are you a more than conqueror when it comes to things that frighten you? The big questions you don't know the answers to. More than being alone. Can God conquer even that? God is with you because the presence of Christ is with you. God gives us his promise and he gives us the person. Greater is he that lives in you than he who is in the world, is one of the scriptures say. In the midst of our problems, we are given his presence and we are given his peace. My encouragement to us is that we lay claim to the nearness of God. The God's grip is like a parachute when we feel like we're falling and that we repeat it to ourselves over and over again. Never will God leave you, never will he forsake you till the ends of the world. First John 4, 4 says this, you dear children are from God and have 
and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. All the things that stand against you, the person inside of you that you have in Christ is bigger than those. Our response to the problems that we face is to clutch on to fear, clutch on to the how will this work out? How is, am I going to get through this? What will happen? The how will and what will will keep you up all night long because you feel isolated. And we end up walking around like Joseph. What are we going to do? And God's response is, you're not alone in the midst of this. There's a phrase that happens 436 times in the Bible. Uh, in, in one of the translations, it's there 436 times. It says, it came to pass. Things will come. Things will pass. And usually we think that that's how we get through life. It'll come and go. Your problems will come. Your problems will go. The good times, this is what Ecclesiastes says, will come and we will celebrate and then the bad times will come and you'll celebrate. And there's a season for each of these, good, bad, and everything will come to pass. But there's one thing that sticks, the witness of God in the midst of everything that comes to pass. Joseph learned this. In the presence of chaos, he has promised Emmanuel. And so this week, this season, when loneliness tends to strike us, when we don't understand when or how we're going to get through the next two weeks, may we focus on the presence of God with you in the middle of it all. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the gift. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for Emmanuel, that you are with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in the biggest unknown that we all face, you are with us. You comfort, you strengthen, you come alongside, you don't leave us isolated. You're not focused on getting us an escape, but you're focused on walking us through the valley. You walk with us even when we're out of the valley. You never leave, you never forsake, and for that we thank you. So God, may we be aware of your presence in the most God-forsaken places of this place, of this earth. May, be, may we be aware that we are never alone. You are with us, the with us God. In your name we pray.